0: Okay, let's get into the God's Word. Good morning, everybody. I've uh, missed uh, missed all of you guys. This, I think, has been uh, two weeks since we've been uh, here on a Sunday, so it's good to be back. And I just wanted to thank Mike for uh, carrying the load for the last three weeks. I see you. I thank you. We appreciate you and the insights that God has given to you, um, to us through you. And so today we're going to study two sections in Matthew twenty-six. We're going to look at 31 to 35, which is where Jesus uh, predicts that Peter and the disciples are going to deny him. And then we're going to look at 69 to 75, where the prediction actually comes true. Um, I was only assigned 31 to 35, but I thought, um, if I don't do 69 to 75, then I don't really leave too much meat on the bone for whoever has to teach that next section. So we'll look at the prediction and then the fulfillment of the prediction As you recall, last week, the disciples and Jesus were reclining at table celebrating the first day of the uh, unleavened bread on Passover. Uh, There, we might say that Jesus was closing a circuit. You know, in one hand, he was bridging the early church to the beautiful tradition of the Jewish Passover, where God's people remembered the faithfulness of God to deliver the Hebrews out of bondage. But on the other hand, Jesus was also bridging the gap and showing his people that the image of Passover, which is jesus's life and sacrifice were actually going to be realized in his death in the midst of that jesus also instituted the first communion which for his church would be like passover an ongoing reminder of jesus's ministry so in any in in one way it was like the last passover and in another way it was like the first passover right um One start, one uh, end to two different really important times with Jesus smack dab right in the middle. In the last few weeks, Mike has touched on the fact that God was also sovereign over so many of the different circumstances surrounding his death. And last week, we were introduced to another aspect of God's plan, which is the fact that Jesus would be betrayed, and specifically by Judas, right? Now, I know the stuff around Judas— can be controversial at times. People love to talk about Judas or ask questions about him. You know, did he go to heaven? Was he at the Lord's Supper when it happened? And to be honest, we don't really know a ton. There is some theology about Judas, but I'm not going to really get into into that. Um, I'm going to more focus on the, the other disciples and Peter specifically. But one of the things that I marvel at when I read God's word is um, as we wrestle with this idea of man writing God's word, the, the The logical idea is that if it was merely man who wrote God's Word, wouldn't they change how it looks or how wouldn't they change how it's written to make it make them look better, right? You get the opportunity to write either letters or um, inspired words of God. You would think that the as you're putting it out into the public, you would try to kind of clean up the image that you're putting out there, right? Uh, because we do that as people. We, we try to clean our image up, and we want people to think the best of us. And if we look at the Gospels, if there was ever a nominee for guys who, guy whose image should be cleaned up even a little bit, so we don't make him look like an idiot for the thousands of years, that award, who was the nominee for that award? Be Peter, right? He is the the leading, leading in that category by a landslide. Um, we have seen the Apostle Peter just completely strike out so many times just in the book of Matthew. And that doesn't even include the other Gospels, which kind of, if it's written by John, it makes Peter look even worse in some cases. So let's let's look at uh, verses 31 to 35 and then also 69 to 75 because I think God includes this story for a reason. And I just want us to unpack those reasons because I think they're quite relevant for us. Matthew twenty six thirty one to 35, and then we'll switch over to 69 to 75 and look at the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. Verse 31 says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now fast forward to verse 69. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean but he denied it before them all saying i do not know what you mean and he went out to the entrance and when he went out to the entrance another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders this man was with Jesus of Nazareth and again he denied it with an oath i do not know the man verse 73 after a little while while the bystanders came up to him came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for... Um, for this day where we get to hear your word and to praise you together. And we thank you for this scripture here where um, we see some things about you and we see some things about Peter and the other disciples. And I just pray this morning that you would speak to us and teach us what your word means. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So instead of like, I guess, a three-section sermon, which I commonly do, I thought we could go through through each section verse by verse, starting in verse thirty-one, and occasionally I flip over to sixty-nine to seventy-five when it's applicable, so we can see how Peter's denial plays out. So let's start in verse thirty-one. If you guys want to follow with me in your Bibles, starting in verse thirty-one, Jesus says, "You will all fall away because of me this night." The first thing we see is that Jesus to talk is talking to them, and when we see you will all fall away. Jesus is basically saying after the Passover meal, you are all going to betray me. This is an important thing to know, and I hope it relieves some of the angst we tend to feel towards Peter because Jesus foretells that they will all fall away. So that's one really big thing to know. It's not just, he's not picking on Peter. He's not saying you're going to fall away and nobody else is. You're the worst, Peter. Everyone else is going to be true to me to the end, and it's just going to be you struggling. No, he's saying that you will all fall away because of me this night. So that's the first thing to know. The second thing is that Jesus predicts, he he describes the event as them falling away, and I think it's important for us to wrap our heads around that. Other translations of this verse render it as lose faith, or deny me, or take offense at me. What was your say, Chris? 31. Yeah. Any other? Are there any other non-ESV versions? Stumble. So there's a lot of different... I, I, as I look through uh, a bunch of different translations, it, it was strange to see how so few of them actually agreed with the same usage. They all greatly used almost what would appear to be drastically different language. And so I think it's important to explore what it means to fall away. When we use the term fall away, we generally take it to mean that they have fallen away from the faith harshly or permanently, right? We take it to mean that they've denied Christ and have abandoned um, Jesus. We, we take it to mean apostasy, right? Generally speaking, when we say somebody has fallen away, um, we might choose to use something softer like backslidden if we mean something less than apostasy. But usually we would say that somebody has backslidden or we would say that they've fallen away and we usually mean to say that they've apostatized. However, in this specific case, because we have the benefit of the rest of the Bible, we can conclude that Jesus is not saying that the, that Peter and the other disciples are going to deny Christ and become apostate. And the reason is because we actually get we have the benefit of seeing how Peter is restored, right? We have the benefit of seeing how Peter recovers We have the benefit of seeing how Peter reacts. Remember at the end of verse 75, it says that he went out and wept bitterly. So we see that immediately after Peter does this thing, he is broken, right? He is upset. He mourns his sin. And later on, we see that Peter is there with the rest of the disciples. We see that he is there. We see that he is waiting for Christ. We see that Peter is one of the first people to see Jesus' resurrection. And of course, in John 21, we see the full restoration of Peter as Jesus asks him three times, do you love me, Peter, right? Uh, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to, to express his love towards Christ three times, which is, uh, which is awesome. Um, but the reason I bring this up isn't to make us feel better about the times when we have abandoned Christ. Just by saying... Um, that they were that he, they were restored as disciples or that Peter was restored. I'm not trying to say that so that we have some sort of license to abandon Christ whenever we want, right? What they did was still wrong. What they did was still egregious. But the scriptures also show us that even in Christ, those egregious things will be forgiven. Amen? If we confess our sins, if we turn to him, there is this full picture that God can take... Uh, these men who denied Christ, who said no to him, who denied that they even knew him one day, and then just a couple days later, restore them and say, I'm going to build my church on you and send them out with the Great Commission, right? Um, that There wasn't a huge time gap in between those things, right? So that's one thing I really want us to take away. When it says fall away, um, we, we, kind of, we actually have a harsher definition of that. The third thing is that I want us to see is that Jesus predicts that they will fall away. When, does, when are they going to fall away? You will all fall away because of me when? This night or tonight, right? He's saying you're going to fall away from me tonight. And so with that word tonight in mind, let's jump over to verses 69 to 74. And let's look at what tonight looks like, what it entails, right? Just to give you an idea of what's happened By the time we get to verse 69, Jesus has already prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples have already failed to keep watch with them because, what does Jesus say? Even the spirit is indeed willing, but their flesh is what? Weak. Jesus has been arrested out of the garden, and according to verse 58, Peter was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And so when we get to verse 69, We see that Jesus is at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and he's meeting before the council to to discuss or to discuss this claim. That you guys remember when Jesus says that in three days he could destroy the temple and raise it back up, right? That's one of the things they're pressing Jesus on. They bring him in. He has said this egregious thing against the temple. He gets taken out of the garden, and Peter's kind of traveling and trailing at a distance, and he's still with Jesus, but he's trailing. He doesn't want to be caught. And so fast forward up to verse 69, and you take in some of the other Gospels, we see that Peter is outside in the courtyard. Uh, the scriptures this, uh, describe it as being cold, and so they, they're all standing around a bonfire trying to keep their hands warm. It's, it's Peter, it's some of the servants, it's some of the officers from from Caiaphas, the high priest, and they're all chilling at the back of the of the house in the courtyard, kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And so Peter's just like... Nothing to see here. What are you? What are you guys hearing about what's going on in the house? Right? He's trying to, trying to pick up some details about what's going on with Jesus, without outrightly putting himself out there saying like, I, I'm specifically here with Christ. Right? So that that's the story that we have, and so while Peter's doing this and he's kind of around it, in and around the house and trying to figure out what's going on, he's actually questioned three times about his affiliation with Jesus. The first one is in verse 69 by a servant girl who works at the high priest's house, and she asks him this. She says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. Peter responds, I do not know what you mean. What are you talking about is basically what Jesus is saying, right? Hey, weren't you with him? I don't know what you're saying, right? So that's the first time. The second denial is in verse 71, and it says this. When he went out to to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, Hmm, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 72 says, again, he denied it with an oath. So he takes it to a, 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 another step, right? He doesn't just say, I don't know what you're talking about. He denies it with an oath and says, I do not know this man. When you see oath, maybe it might, I swear, I don't know him, right? He's taking a more official stance. Instead of just saying, I don't know what you're talking about, he's saying, I officially do not know who you're talking about. Instead of pretending that the girl doesn't know what she's talking about, Peter makes a definitive statement. According to John twenty five twenty seven, we see in the scriptures that the second servant girl, in quotes, was actually related to the man whose ear Peter had cut off. You guys remember that story? You know the the, the officers come to get Jesus, and in his in uh, his zeal and his passion, this is another one of those moments where I I think Peter would. Uh, Change the story a little bit if he could, if he could revise history. Pulls his sword out, chops the guy's ear off. Right, this is a real. This is not like uh, Sunday school lore. This is an actual thing that we're gonna see in the scriptures. And so we see that the second servant girl is related to that guy. And so I think you know the the officers come back from the house and they get Jesus in there and then uh, the you know Caiaphas says okay leave him and the officers go outside to the courtyard. And, you know, his ear, you know, he's got a brand-new ear and, like, his old ear. And I uh, imagine he comes back and he's telling his cousin, he's like, yeah, this guy cut his ear off. I think that's him. Um, then Jesus healed it. And so the the conversation is just probably, I just, I'm just i making some of this stuff up. But, you know, I can imagine some of the conversations evolving. And they're like, that's the guy. And, hey, weren't, weren't you with Jesus at the time? And Jesus says, no. I'm sorry, Peter says, no, it was not me. Right? He makes the oath then the third one is in verse 73 and it says after a little while the bystanders came up and said to peter certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you so can you imagine them they're like you know they're heating their hands around this bonfire and they're maybe commiserating in the corner they're like i, I think it's i think it's him he keeps saying no but like i think it's him right like he, I think he even talks like jesus right he has a kind of like a similar accent they're like I can imagine them trying to put the clues together and trying to figure it out. But it's also super early in the morning, right? So people maybe aren't thinking straight. They're not. They don't know what's going on. They're like, I think, I think it's him, though. He talks like Jesus. Um, I think that's the guy who cut his ear off. I think, I think I've seen him with them, right? So they're they're piecing it together, and their accusations are becoming more direct and intense. And so for Peter, it says in verse seventy-four. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Now, I'm having a hard time understanding what it means to invoke a curse on yourself and to swear. But one commentator says that in, in, in trying to distance himself from Jesus, he starts to cuss, right? Uh, they're, they're saying this in the commentary. Like, he, you know, he starts using worldly language as a means to say, well, if I was one of his, then I wouldn't swear, Right? I wouldn't speak like this if I was one of them, and maybe changes up his accent a little bit. And so three denials, each progressively get worse, and this is what is happening in the night. When Jesus is picturing it, when he's predicting this to Peter, this is what Jesus is, is, is imagining in his mind, right? And so let's go back over to verses 31 and 32. And verse 31 says, Jesus says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so this is a direct quote from Zechariah 13, which details a great shepherd who would lead, who would lead God's people. And who, who of course, are we, are we discussing here? Who's the good shepherd? It is Jesus from uh, John chapter 10, right? So John chapter 10 is a, a fulfillment of Zechariah who consistently uses this character called the shepherd and so if you guys have a chance to read it i encourage you guys to read it zechariah speaks of the shepherd who does a bunch of different things but this is one of the the references who says i will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered john chapter 10 describes jesus as the good shepherd who and i just want to list a couple of the things here john chapter 10 describes jesus as the good shepherd who knows his people knows them and calls them by name, goes before them, leads them, protects them, guides them to pasture, gives them abundant life, lays his life down for them and then picks it back up. And so praise God for this because even in the midst of this image of the sheep being scattered after the shepherd is struck, we also see this promise that after that he will be raised up, right? And we actually see that in John chapter 10. I lay my life down, and then I pick it back up, right? And so buried into this terrible news of the disciples' abandonment is also this promise that not only will the good shepherd be raised up by the Father, but he will appear to them. And what happens when Jesus appears to his disciples? Very practically speaking, it is then that the disciples, especially Peter, are restored. Though they are scheduled to abandon Christ they are also scheduled to be restored by Christ, who will go on to use them in powerful ways. Amen? And so before I move on to the rest of the verses, I want to pause for a second here to reflect on this. What can we learn from the fact that baked into God's redemptive plan is the disciples' abandonment? This is something that I had a hard time kind of wrapping my head around. It seems that their sin... Is included in the gospel story, right? And I know when we think about uh, prophecy and we think about fulfillment, we can't. We tend to think about the really good things, right? Like where Jesus was born and whatnot. But I think Mike has listed a bunch of them over the last couple weeks. There are a lot of prophecies that were fulfilled that were not beautiful, right? That were very painful. That were very uh, hurtful to Christ that intensified the gospel, that intensified his death. Um, and so baked into that gospel message is also this note that the flock will be scattered, that they will abandon him. Um, it can be hard to wrap our heads around, right? But I want us to really think about it. What does it mean that there? And by extension, our heinous sin is accounted for in God's redemptive plan. It's an honest question that I, I, I've been pondering over the last week. I think that as Christians, we have a, a tendency to overestimate and overrate ourselves, uh, which we will see fuller in Peter's answer to Jesus' prediction. But apart from overestimating how good we actually are, we're actually also really good at overestimating the ability of our actions to mess with or to thwart God's plans, Right? And so this morning I want us I want to remind all, all of us here Christian you cannot stop or thwart or mess up God's plans with your weaknesses with your sins or your failures. Um I think when we think of the disciples and the fact that they all abandon Christ the logical thought is to think well they have really let him down and this is going to mess up the course of time, right? But what we see is that's not that that's not all Only is that not the case, but it was actually taken into account ahead of time. And for some reason and in some way, our sin and our failures factor in into the story, right? Now, that's not me saying, okay, well, just go out and do whatever you want with your life because God's going to factor it in, right? Uh, don't hear that, don't, don't go home saying, well, you know, Jermaine said I could just sin and, you know, God will kind of do the math, you know, that, that, that would, the budget will balance itself. I'm not, I'm not saying that, right? But what I am saying is that our sin is dealt with in Christ, but apart from the theological implication of what happens to our sin on the cross, it's also factored into the story. And when I, so what the, what I'm really trying to say is that our sin cannot stop God's plan, right? Somehow built into this thing called God's plan, our sin is somehow accounted for. And so it's worth asking the question, how does God miraculously use our failures to accomplish his will? I don't want to somehow propose that we should just live willy-nilly because God will fix our mistakes, but what I am saying is that in God's sovereign plan, let's stop overrating our ability to thwart his plans, we have to take responsibility for our actions, but I don't think we can go so far the other way where we think that everything falls on us. So for, for example, if you miss an assignment and don't preach the gospel when you know you should have, we have a tendency of, of coming down on ourselves and thinking, well, I guess that person is going to hell now because I didn't step up this one time, right? Now when I say that, I don't mean, okay, now you can just slacking up and not do what god is asking you to do but what i am saying is that god's plan is stronger than your mistakes right god's power and his love and his mercy is stronger than our than our ability to be perfect and to and to do the stuff that we want to do every time god is still able to save a person um, that you didn't share the gospel with right god god's plan takes that into account another example is with your kids who here feels distressed that they may be messing up their kids' lives, right? Yeah. Honestly. When we mess up with our kids, and I'm not even talking about one-time mistakes, but those times when you realize that you're actually creating a pattern in your home, that you're, at, you're, you're messing up your kids, I want to encourage us not to give in to the despair that somehow we may have broken our kids, Right? Uh, who, who's, who's ever felt that, right, you see your kids, you're like, man, I think I, like, I think I, I, that's it, right, like, I've given them, I've wired them, I finished the programming, I closed the sequence, and now they're off into the world, and I can't do anything about it, it's not, it's not true, right, I think we, we're overrating our, uh, 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 the just, the, the fact that our, we think that our mistakes can just completely ruin them, and then we also are underrating the fact that God is the one who's taking care of them, right? This applies in every other area of our lives. Our jobs. Who here has felt despair that maybe you didn't you're not doing a great job in your workplace, right? Or your marriage. Or your friendships. You maybe you feel like you're a bad friend. Oh yeah, I didn't, I I should have called, but I didn't call, right? Um our bank accounts, right? We've made these mistakes with our budget, and now and now we're we're just we're just finished, right? In a lot of situations, we will have to face the consequences of our mistakes. Some of the consequences, I think, I do think God is merciful to, to 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 shield us from a lot of the consequences that we should. I think if we had to face every single consequence that was due to us, I don't I don't think our lives would look the same. God is merciful, right? He even today, shields us from some of the mistakes that we make. But I guarantee you that God's power and his mercy and his love is a million times more potent than your ability to mess up your life. Amen? His love and his power is a million times more potent than your ability to mess your life up. And so the disciples, including Peter, did not mess up the gospel with their actions, right? Right? Yes, it was bad. Yes, it was egregious. And it was something that they repented of. But it did not knock the gospel off his course. It didn't ruin the path that Christ was on. And I think that's really important for us to to note. Let's keep it moving. Let's look at Peter's response in verse 33. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And so I wish I had confidence like Peter. His confidence here is unbelievable, and he's confident about two things here. First, Peter is pretty confident that people can indeed fall away. He hears Jesus' prediction. He knows that Jesus is the Son of Man, and so he's taking Jesus' words seriously. And he admits that it is possible for people to fall away. However, the second thing he's confident about is that he will never fall away, right? He says, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. He's basically saying this. These guys, these guys are definitely going to fall away. Yeah, I, I could definitely see John falling away. James, 100%. Yeah, I could see that guy falling away. But me? Never me, right? Not me. No doubt about it, Jesus. Right? He's that, he's that guy. No doubt about it. 100% guaranteed, Jesus, I'll never fall away. And so in response, Jesus doubles down on his prediction with one really powerful word. And the word is Details. Jesus responds to Peter with details in verse 34. He says this, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So let's break it down. There's four details. The first one he says is truly. So you guys have seen Jesus start sentences like that, right? Truly. Or sometimes he says truly, truly. Or uh, some versions say verily. Verily I say unto thee. The word truly is actually the Hebrew word for amen. And when do we usually say amen? At the end, right? But Jesus flips it. He puts amen at the start. So he's saying amen. I tell you, right? We say amen as a punctuation to end a sentence. And it is a firm, it's like closing the loop on a thing, and it's a firm ending. It's a firm, uh, it's a way of firming up what you've said. So Jesus says it at the start. And if you guys remember, he actually does it 25 other times in the book of Matthew, 50 times in the, in the gospel of John. Jesus loves using this. And for some reason, he loves putting it at the start of sentence because he really wants to make his point. So first, he, the first thing he does here is by he uses this word truly, which is a he, he's putting his foot down. He's like saying, listen to me, Peter. Honestly, bro, just listen to me for a second. I'm not just making a general statement about your falling away. The second thing that Jesus gives more clarity on is, is after truly, he says, this night, I tell you, this very night, this very night, he's saying, Jesus, you're not, he says, he says, Peter, you're not listening to me. I'm not talking about on night, and maybe you're missing the point when I say tonight, but what I'm saying is this very night, literally tonight, Sunday, November 20th night, this night, you will, you will deny me. I'm picturing, I, like it's in this Day on this calendar day you are going to fall away, right? So Jesus says truly, then he doubles down on the day, and then the third thing he does is he attaches Peter's denial to a rooster crowing. So this isn't some random rooster crowing. When do roosters crow? In the morning, at what we say daybreak, right? As the day it becomes officially the next day. Jesus is saying here is not only will you deny me tonight. But I'm going to tell you the exact same time, at the exact time you're going to deny me within the the period of night. You're going to deny me right at daybreak. And I'm going to give you an audio visual, physical representation of your denial of me. It's not just going to be a concept, it's not just going to be uh, something that you're imagining in your mind. I will literally raise up a rooster who will crow. And when you hear it, And when I hear it, we'll both know what you've done, right? He's giving a very, very, very tangible and very strong uh, idea of what's happening here, right, by using this rooster. And that's why if we fast forward to verse 75, after the rooster crows, it says, And Peter remembered the saying from Jesus. In the Luke version, Peter is described to have run away. And it also says in the Luke version that Jesus visually sees Peter running away, right? And so Peter's in the house being questioned by Caiaphas, and then all of a sudden, he hears the rooster crow. And so can you imagine Jesus kind of look out the door? You hear the rooster crow, and then you see Peter running off in the distance crying, right? It, it, it's a little bit ridiculous, but it, it, it's so tangible, He sees Peter running away. and Can you imagine the heartbreak that Jesus would have felt when that happened? Not even the one to say, I told you so, but just, there it is, right? There he goes. Then the fourth thing Jesus does is he says, not only are you going to deny me, not only are you going to do it tonight, and not only will a rooster remind you, and you're not going to just do it one time. You are going to deny me three times, Right? He gives the very specific detail of three times. The rooster will crow two times, and you will deny me three times. Specificity about how many times it will happen. Jesus gives details, right? He's not just making up a general statement. He's, not, he's saying, you're going to deny me three times, right? And so this begs the question, why does Peter deny Jesus after Jesus goes all the way out to say, like, this is exactly what's going to happen. I like the way that Leon Morris says it. And he's one of the, you may have heard me refer to him. He's one of the commentators I like to read when I get stuck. This is what he says. Peter may have been in some danger, but there is little to indicate this. When the enemies came to Gethsemane, they arrested Jesus, but they did nothing more. No action against the apostles is recorded. Even when Peter cut off the ear of one of them, there seems to have been no retaliation. And later on, he goes to say, it's hard to understand why this story was even recorded, right? Because it actually has no ramifications on the story of Christ himself. He's, just, he's, he's on his path, right? He's on his way to the cross. And then you have this little side story with Peter who is just falling apart, right? As, long, as well as the other disciples. And so it's hard to know why Peter did it. It really is, right? Especially if there was no cost to Peter's life. And so why even include this story in the Bible? I have three reasons that I want to talk about. The first one is is because it highlights our Savior, Jesus Christ. It reminds us that our Lord unto his death was completely alone. He was alone in the garden. He was alone when he was questioned and falsely accused. He was alone as he was beaten and bruised. He was alone as he took the wrath of God on him. And so we must see that this story only includes one hero, and what's his name? It was Jesus. No friend to be found. They all lost courage, right? This is not a story about Jesus and his friends. This is a story about Jesus, period. Second reason why we have to include this story is that it highlights that it is not the strength of man that prevails, but only God's. No matter how confident Peter has been through the Gospels, it is not confidence that gets us through life. Amen? It is not our own boldness or our loyalty that stands the test of time. It is only God's that counts in the end. Amen? Because as we look at the story of humanity, as we look at our own lives I pray that as his people that we may be able to recount uh, both in our past and in our future, today even, I pray that we would have many instances where we can say, yeah, I did not deny Christ and I followed him and I obeyed him. But, guys, we got to be able to, we got to know what to do with stories when it doesn't include that, right, when it includes our failures. I mean, who's failed today? Who here's failed this weekend, Right? This, the, the, the reason we're here is because we are not perfect, but only Jesus is, right? And so when we look at the story of our lives and when we look at these stories in the Bible, they're not given to us so that we would feel better about our loyalty and our confidence and to say, well, look at this crazy streak I'm on. You know, I've read my Bible for two weeks. Or I haven't done this or I haven't done that. The fact of the matter is that we are needy and broken people. Which leads me to the third reason This story acts as a reminder that we should not overestimate overestimate ourselves. Time and time again, we are painted in God's word as not not as strong warriors with so much to brag about, but rather as weak and foolish people. And this is God's design. Because it it is not the strong and wise of our age that God uses, but people like you and I who are weak. Amen? And so the conclusion of the message is this. As human followers of Christ... We fall prey to the same trap as Peter. This is what Peter said. He said, never me, Jesus. Even if I have to die, I'll stay true to the end. And so, so church, what what would you say to me or what would you do if Jesus was telling you this morning that you would betray him, that you would abandon him and fall away, that you would sin grievously? The fact of the matter is that even though we like to think we would be different, we, like the rest of the disciples, will sin again, and we will betray Him again. First, because we are still in these bodies of sin, and it's for that reason we are told in the Lord's Prayer to ask daily for forgiveness. We're told in First John to confess our sins to God and to seek His cleansing. As Christians, we must not underrate our ability to sin, or overrate how strong we think we are. I think as human beings, we tend to think of ourselves highly. We think that we would perform well under pressure we think to ourselves well if calamity ever struck me i would do really well right if i got diagnosed with cancer i think i would have the 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 mental fortitude to stick it out right if i was maimed today i think i would be fine right we tend to think to think of ourselves as really strong, we think, you know, if somebody broke into my house and threatened my family, I would definitely punch them in the face. Who's, who's ever thought that before? Who's ever imagined their family, like if threat had came came down on your house, you you think or you would like to think that you would stand under that pressure, right? And I hope that we would hope that we would we would defend our families. A lot of us think if a, if a man or a woman ever offered to have sex with me, I would easily say no. If I found a big bag of money on the side of the road, I would definitely give it to the police. If I was tempted to lie about something, I would definitely tell the truth. Church, I'm not saying that any of us want to do these things, but if we ever for a moment think that we could never fall, then we are in the worst possible position. The truth is, 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 is that if any of us have achieved any sort of holiness, if, if any of us here have achieved any sort of track record of not doing heinous things, you must understand that it is by the grace of God that you stand this morning, not because of your confidence or your strength or your loyalty to Jesus. And church, the, 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 the flip side is true. If you, if you have failed and have done heinous things lately or a long time ago or in between, It is still by the grace of God that you continue. It is in Christ that we have complete forgiveness. Amen. And because of the cross of Christ, we have been forgiven and cleansed. All we have to do again is to confess our sins to him and turn from our mistakes. Amen. And so let us never say, never me, Lord. Let us not be those people who say, never me. We have to live in reality, right? I hope that it is never us. Sincerely. I hope that it is never us. But it's never, never let us be the people that say, never me, Lord. Let's be Christians who say, I know myself and I know my Lord, but only by his strength can I stand. And so to close, I want to end with a passage written by Peter himself. Do you guys remember the story in Matthew 16 when Jesus was telling his disciples and be raised up? Peter said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Do you guys remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. Who's, has anyone here ever been called Satan? Devastating, right? Get behind me, state, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You can imagine that as Peter ran weeping, that he knew for that, at that moment that he really did not have God's concerns in mind, but he had his own in mind, right? And I imagine over that time between Jesus' death and his resurrection that Peter pondered the words of Christ and that Peter pondered all of the times when he was confident in his flesh when he had no reason to be, right? I can imagine that Peter replayed all of those times where he failed and that he had confidence that that was not from Christ but confidence in some weird loyalty or strength that he thought he had. And I know for a lot of us in this room, we replay those times in our minds too, right? As we are reminded of our sin, as we sin as uh, sin daily, if we are not going to the cross with it immediately, I know a lot of us struggle with, it, with that. We sit there and we ask ourselves, how could I, right? We replay the mistakes we made, right? And so as Peter wrote to the church in exile... Peter knew about the deceitfulness of sin as well as the hatred of the enemy who seeks to, to ensnare us. He knew that we not only live in the bodies of sin, but also battle against a powerful enemy. And so I want you guys to hear the words of Peter, who time and time again was told to be confident in Jesus and not our flesh. And I'm going to close off the message by reading these verses. It's from 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 6 to 11. Peter says this. who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Guys, as Peter wrote those words, I imagine that if he could have preached those same words to the younger version of himself, who was confident and cocky that he could never deny Christ, I'm sure that if he could write these letters to a younger version of himself he could have right and it's because of that failure that he could say that to the exiles and he could say that to us today and so in a way we thank jesus for the influence of peter in our lives right <laughs> who made mistakes he we, we stand on his shoulders in a way right um and so let's 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 close in prayer and um we'll go on our way Jesus, you have included this story of Peter and the disciples' failure to stick by your side. But you also said that you, that it was prophesied in, 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 in the book of Zechariah, and that the denying and the sin of the disciples, and also us, I guess, to this day, is somehow taken into account by your, in, in your redemptive plan. And so we praise you this morning because we know that we cannot thwart your plans And I just pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, we would not overrate our ability to follow you. And I also pray that you would help us to not underrate your goodness and the fact that you sustain us and that you cause us to stand. Father, I just pray that we would take our salvation seriously. That we would not be people who say, never me. But that we would be people who say, always you, God. Thank you, and I pray that you would go with us this day. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.